The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and I can't tell you how excited I am to say that Rudy Reyes is here. If you've been following me on social media, you know I've been kind of stoked about this for a little while now. Um, Anyways, for those of you who don't know who he is, just Google him. Um, also, um, that's an easy way to do it. I think I even got a Wikipedia. You do. You definitely do. (laughs) So, Sergeant Rudy Reyes is an author, father, Co-founder of Force Blue, which is a nonprofit connecting both the veteran and science communities for ocean conservation. They're doing incredible things. He's a recon marine, scout sniper, and team leader, award-winning martial artist, like to the level of being on the cover of Black Belt magazine. Um, TV and movie star, you probably saw him on playing himself on HBO's Generation Kill. And that's just kind of the the tip of the iceberg, if you will. So um yeah, so thank you for being thank here. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Paige. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, when you asked me, uh, I take every opportunity. This is part of my style, and I think it's been my saving grace, even in times of struggle and darkness and fear, is I have such confidence in my ethical and moral character that I do not need a map. Uh, I need no roadmap uh, in my life because the vehicle that I drive has great headlights, so I can always see um, 100 meters down the road, and no matter how many twists and turns, I can navigate that road, and that's why I can go so fast. And that's probably why I have stacked so many things that you're talking about in these 47 years. Um, it's because I, uh, I keep my, f- my f- uh, foot on the gas, and uh, it's allowed me to reach so many more people, and it's allowed me to come back to myself, too. And every... Every piece of this process and this evolution, it's so interesting. I'm not a material person, and I, that means I'm not a spiritually material person either or a uh, accolades uh, material person. I do not need to collect. What this process has done for me is strip away, strip away what I don't need. When you want to drive fast and you're not afraid of the windy roads because you're going to go to new destinations, um, you strip away everything that is not useful for you. And that's why I do it the way I do it. And I love that. It's, I feel like that's a huge, huge part of why you've been as successful as you I think been. so. I think so. Now, there's that, that way of living is not without its perils and danger because sometimes you get scared. Or uh, imagine if your car breaks down, i.e. you get hurt. Or you run out of gas. Uh, and I don't have enough emotional and spiritual fuel in my tank and you break down and you're far uh, far in the hinterland in an arctic area then it gets scary and I'm speaking a metaphor Um, so I've learned that my horse saddle man that's what we call it in recon horse saddle man that's your priorities of work as soon as you come off a mission the horse is your vehicle Uh, Your saddle is all your equipment and weapon systems. And then the man, that's your personal administration. That's what you have to do with your physical fitness, your mental fitness, your food, and your sleep. 
uh, I look at that now spiritually, horse saddle man. And uh, for that reason, I, with love, have had to let go of a lot of people and with love had to let go of certain opportunities or so-called opportunities because they didn't quite fit with, uh, with the streamlined freaking, you know, Ferrari meets uh, Land Rover mm-hmm. vehicle, spiritual vehicle that I've created. Um, you know, every time I'm here in Los Angeles, my actor brothers and, and my theater and entertainment people, who I love very much, they're always asking me, when am I going to move to L.A.? And I'm one of the few guys that can work in this business and work in this industry at this level that, that uh, I'm one of the few that does not have to live here. Or I choose not to live here. And slowly the business has worked around me. Uh, why I don't live here is because the ambient friction and static in this place because there's so much power here with money, with media, Big Pharma is here too. Uh, there's so much, um, um, almost an atmosphere of tension. It doesn't do good for me. It it wears me down. So I come in here as a commando and hit my missions and do do my targets, uh, go into sensitive site exploitation, and then um, hot wash it and process that information and turn it into intelligence. That's what I do here. And I love doing it the way I'm doing it. Um, it's, it's still a process for me to understand where to draw the line every time, every time I'm here. I'm working right now with We Are The Mighty, and I have a great brother named Chase Millsap, and he was a, he was a Marine Corps officer first, a grunt commander, and then he became a Green Beret officer, and he has fought all over the Middle East and Afghanistan. Now he's a writer and a producer, and he's my teammate. I have created a new recon team, and I have Jeff Carrizales out here. I have some of my, my friends I met through MVP. Um, I have, um, I have there was a wonderful woman soldier here who is dedicated to her own self-development as well. And uh, that inspires me to work on myself. I now have my recon team. Uh, I love it's that. It's awesome. And that's how I, I was successful overseas, even my sniper missions. I always had two other men. I had my spotter sniper that was with me, and I always brought a machine gunner. I was never overconfident enough to think that I can do it all on my own. Now, finally, in Los Angeles, I have the right people for this elite hitter uh, team and squad so that we can all progress and all win together. That's that's how I make L.A. happen for me. You do it the same way you did it in the military. Same thing. So what I've learned, sense. absolutely. So I've learned, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Eric Thomas and he's a PhD now Eric Thomas I don't know if you've heard him speak he's one of the most sought after if not the most sought after motivational speaker black from the hood of Detroit and he can talk thug and he'll come at you with uh, um, I don't need an alarm clock no alarm clock needed my passion wakes me up my passion he says Innovation is celebrated. Execution is worshipped. No, I remember when you sent me a video by him. That's him. That's right. That's him. I really like and, that, actually. And he is so rad because he comes from the street. Yeah. But somewhere, somehow, it took him 12 years to get his four-year degree. After that, he said, well, this is just a four-year degree. And he was starting to speak to kids and colleges. And he immediately saw Tony Robbins. 
And he says, well, that's the standard. What am I wasting my time for? You need to uh, have so much rage and passion and love and know why you want to go through the fire, but you must go to the highest echelon. I mean, what else is there to do in this life? And uh, and that's the way I, I push myself uh, to live my life. And it seems ambitious when I speak on it sometimes. And I bet people don't know me. They're like, who is this arrogant SOB, you know? And I'm not arrogant, but I damn sure know what I want. Uh, I'm here, quite frankly, and we'll get into aliens later. I think I got more alien DNA than most people or something. Because notice I don't age, really. And I've been through hell. And I see the future. I like I dream the future and stuff. Um, I, uh, I believe I was put on this planet to save the human race. And I think that's why uh, I got through that very hard, hard childhood. And I found myself always drawn to strength, uh, sport, and martial arts. Always drawn to it. Matter of fact, you know, I was on the cover of Black Belt Magazine and why that means so much to me is because I remember the mem- the few memories I had of my dad, Rudy Reyes Sr., who I love so much, and I believe he's an angel up there watching out for me, um, when I did get to spend time with him. And my dad, he called me dad. My dad always said dad because in a sense, I don't know, I think he knew I was going to be a leader even when I was this big. He would take me to the quick trip or the 7-Eleven in uh, South Texas and we'd pick up my Black Belt magazine and my comic books. And I remember looking at Black Belt magazine and looking at the still photos. This is before computers and the internet. And I would try to teach myself what I was watching on in the magazine. And, and already I was in love with manhood and my uh, tireless pursuit of heroism and manhood that led me into the Marine Corps. And I didn't go into the Marine Corps to hurt and kill people. I was, although a competitive fighter, you know, every time I hit and kicked somebody or threw somebody, I always felt sad for them because I knew it hurt them. I, I didn't like doing it to hurt people. I did it to overcome fear and to be excellent in execution. Again, as Eric Thomas says, execution is worshipped. Now, I didn't know Eric Thomas back then. It was a different world in, in the mid-80s to the mid-90s. But... Seeing Bruce Lee, reading about Spider-Man and Wolverine and and Batman, um, watching First Blood with with Sylvester Stallone, who's now you know now a friend I met through Gunnar Peterson, and it's so interesting. My heroes, I'm now around my heroes. They uh, they showed me that there's virtue in doing the right thing always against insurmountable odds. So I joined the Marine Corps because we were going to war in Kosovo to protect people going through a genocide and uh, the Croatian people. And uh, I saw a documentary. This is why media is so powerful. This is why what you're doing is so powerful and why I work in film and television and media now. It is not fake at all. It's not surface-driven at all. It is purpose-driven. I saw a documentary that was, I believe, produced by Woody Harrelson about a gen- the genocide going on uh, with the wars with Croatia and Serbia and um, it was about an orphanage and because I grew up in a boy's home and I grew up uh, shuffled around from one home to another I didn't even I don't even remember how many schools I went to probably 15 schools Um, it hit me and struck me in the heart and then when I read in the paper back when people used to read papers read in the paper that we're gonna that President Clinton is gonna put boots on the ground I was ethically driven to go fight for these children. That's the way I saw it. I didn't know 
if I'd live or die, I joined as an infantryman and the recruiters were, because of my IQ, were trying to get me to be into avionics. And why I didn't do it is because I didn't think that was the most honorable way for me to really serve. And maybe it was youth too. I believed I needed to be in the front lines and, uh, and I shouldn't have got what I wanted. Uh, that's why I became a Marine and then and then I excelled at everything in the very beginning and was offered an opportunity to try out for recon. And then, very few people know this, but I couldn't swim. I could swim for a Midwest kid that was never on a swim team, but there's a big difference between swimming and swimming. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a bigger difference between swimming, swimming, and then swimming with camis, weapon, gear, and then doing rescues, and then ultimately becoming a scout swimmer and then a combat diver. These are higher echelon things. I was scared. I, I, I was, I don't think I'd ever really been in the ocean. And I mean, that's a whole big hungry in of itself because I was so excellent at, at boot camp in the school of infantry and the corporal of the guard, when recon came through, he put my name up to go try out. I was scared to death and I didn't ask to do it. My teammates like they still called me guide from boot camp or um and they called me karate kid and they were so fired up they were like of course you know karate kid can do it the guide can do it yeah he's our champion and i was hiding out in the back of the squad bay uh hiding kind of by a rack you know what i mean i'm like oh i'm like shit i i i can't let these young men down and so I showed up for the NDOC, and who was running the NDOC? Roger Sparks, who we'll get into later. And uh, he's my mentor, my uh, ambassador of the Quan. He is also, after being a recon ranger in an illustrious unit called Alpha Company in Hawaii, the first JSOC unit with recon marines. Uh, he is now the highest decorated pararescueman of all time. He was he was he created and was in charge of the culture of recon. Recon was very small then. Um, 60 operators and and 20 of them are on deployment 20 of them are in schools and the rest are being collected very very small so you'd go to formation sometimes only see five or six cats there because people are in training or in schools or or doing a raid package or a helicopter assault package so um i was so dominant on the land because i'm such a competitor and i had no idea what i was getting into by the time we got to the pool i had a whole half hour of resting at the horno pool and I think at the Horno Pool then, I, I don't know if it's still there now. I'm not even sure if they still have the Horno Pool as it was then. It said, um, if you're unconscious, you have not quit. Because you go unconscious in the water all the time and you're rescued. And sometimes guys die in training. My first year at the unit, 23 of my men died in training. A lot of people don't understand this. So I was already dealing with death from jump. My squad that I was with in the School of Infantry, half of them went to the East Coast and were the, they were the very first squad put in the Osprey that crashed and killed all of them. Uh, so in boot camp, we are, dis, we are desensitized. I don't know if you all know this, but, but how we... Uh, recognize an order and and give the affirmations. We say, kill! We don't say, yes, sir. Yes, senior drill instructor, staff sergeant Slicer, or staff sergeant Dixon, sir. We say, kill! You have to scream kill for yes. 
Yes, sirs. Kill! For three months straight. Kill! And whenever you need uh, recruits or marine, later Marines to go do a working party to make something happen, you say, I need 10 bodies. Uh, give me five bodies. I need more bodies. So it's bodies and kill from jump. Holy shit. You didn't know that, huh? I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. Bodies and kill. Yeah. Damn. So... I was a little over my head, by the way. I remember writing letters to my well, my wife and like uh, late at night in the rain room. That's what they call the shower room where all of us, uh, or the guides and the squad leaders, we would be up late writing and then doing inspections on all the boots, learning the burden of leadership. So we only slept three or four hours a day for um, three months. And I was highly malnutritioned. The Marine Corps starves you to give you, or at least for me, because I was already in shape. I had about five minutes max to eat only three meals a day um, because starving someone puts them in a very much a uh, uh, survival situation and it mimics combat making them sleep deprived and starving them mimic, mimics combat heavy and in the old days remember you had to be prepared after boot camp and then school of infantry to go right into fight with, in Vietnam or before that Korea and before that um, the Pacific so you had to be ready to take orders and absolutely, with fire maneuver, uh, locate close with and destroy the enemy. And, and they do a very good job of that. They do such a good job. There's no fighting force in, in the world like the United States Marine Corps. Um, the downside is the after effects of being reprogrammed that way and the nervous system and brain changes that happen are almost irreparably shifted. I think they are irreparably shifted. And that's okay, because we understand it now. So now, instead of, as, as Grossman says, instead of post-traumatic stress, let us focus on post-traumatic growth. Hmm. Um, like yeah, yeah, because it, you're not going back. Your brain's not going back, neither is your nervous system. You can make it as calm, and you can make it as healthy as possible. But it, do you, you know that term, once a Marine, always a Marine? It's one thing said, but when you're in it, and then you're out of it, you realize absolutely it's true. Um, and we see this in all Highline units, uh, in the Army, the Navy, um, Air Force. My British Royal Marine Commandos, they're also a very hot outfit. My Australian SAS and Australian Commandos, also very hot outfit. Of course, SBS and, um, and the SAS on the Brit side of the house are people over here. Um, our JTACs and CCT, our pararescue, our, our Navy SEALs and Navy EOD Green Berets, Rangers, uh, CAG, Delta Force, uh, Recon, now MARSOC, our Scout Sniper community, all that vibration. Um, that's what I stepped into with no knowledge in the late 90s. And that saved me from going to Kosovo because I ended up being in school for three years and training for three years. And uh, my mentor was Roger Sparks. So now Roger Sparks is my second in command and the chief cultural uh uh, officer of Force Blue, R Roger Sparks. When you look at Force Blue, that's the tall, tall brother. He's a legend. Uh, he'll never say it, but and now he's a prolific tattoo artist. But he makes sure that our warriors uh, that are going to go through this process to now become eco protectors, you know, the Avengers of the ocean. They have to do essay. He looks at their SRB and he has to talk to them because we have to keep this thing pristine premier and absolutely enmeshed with courage virtue honor as a way for healing healing us and healing the reefs so not everybody gets in um, that's the man that 
conditioned and trained me with the illustrious First Sergeant Smith, uh, who, who I lost in the invasion. And, and he's also, maybe this is why I love Eric Thomas so much, uh, Horsehead Smith is black and thug from freaking Chicago and was a calm guy. In the old days, a lot of people said black, um, especially blacks and Latinos, hey, they can't be in the special operations community. They don't want it enough. They don't, they're, not re- they're not redneck enough to grow up with guns and know how to, how to patrol and track deer. And some of us just prove them wrong. And now I want to say the Latino community is the majority in the combat arms of the Marine Corps. But first, first son Smith, though, uh, he was Gunny Smith there. And he's like, Debo dog. He, he still had his kind of thug accent. Of course, he college educated. Um, uh, his wife, Sandy, and their kids, amazing. He said, Debo dog, I was in calm. And when I saw these cats hanging from a rope underneath the helicopter, camied up, and, and I saw them uh, uh, double-timing to the armory with their shit-hot weapons, camouflage, and everybody stayed away from us. I said, that's who I want to be. I want to be like them. They made his ass go back to the freaking School of Infantry after he'd been in a Marine for a few years. Made him go back to the School of Infantry. Then had to go through the arduous selection process. Became one of the masters of recon. Helped create Marine Corps Combatant Dive. Uh, did the French Foreign Legion R- Ranger program. On his off time got his degree. On his off time, and there's no off time in the Marine Corps, uh, especially in recon. I was off time. He was a team leader at First Force. A, a, a drill instructor. I mean, you freaking name it. Then became an Anaheim police officer, and then became an Ana, the very first Anaheim uh, um, Anaheim part time. What do you call it? Part time or not part time? There's another word for it. A reserve or like the National Guard of their SWAT team. So now he's on the SWAT team, on top of leading troops yes. and being a bad mother frapper and he took every opportunity to go in the field with my team and my platoon because when I first met him at the unit I was not even allowed to wear black on black I just got through ARS which they called the last man school in the Marine Corps um, got beat down hard but survived and made it and we had like 80 or 90 percent attrition rate and many of the men that we are going through selection with remember they've already been in the Marine Corps eight years they're salty scout snipers they're salty um, infantrymen they know the craft um, I'm competing against them and they all hated my guts because they said I didn't deserve to be there and in a lot of ways I, I didn't deserve to be there I didn't deserve to be there uh, I just was given this immense opportunity and I was too naive to quit and I was too naive to know how much all these other men had gone through to be there right. and uh, I get to the unit and I check in in my alphas um, or is it chucks no alphas uh, squared away, uh, trim tight. The duty NCO checks me out. As I walk into the duty hut, the laundry room's on the other side of the hallway in the barracks, and all the washing machine or all the dryers are going, and it's and there's sweat all over the freaking uh, windows, and there's there is a marine with a freaking dive mask on his face, full camis, uh, sitting or laying on his back on the laundry table with his fins on, flutter kicking. I'm like, what the hell am I getting into? Later, that man would be uh, Pappy, um, my team leader, Sergeant Patrick. He had been out of the Marine Corps for a couple years. He was already a recon marine and a scout sniper, fought Somalia, did Haiti as well. And 
because he was a little out of shape on our immense hardcore mountain runs uh, and Mar- Margarita Peak runs, they put him on remedial PT and he had to do that every day. I mean, it's just no slack. So immediately, I don't know what to do. So I change into my green on green, even though officially we were black, but I've not been proven to the unit yet. It didn't matter that I went to school. And for Sergeant Smith, it's like, Debo Dog, you want to come out here and get some of this? There's a basketball court right by the pull-up bars and the San Quentin weights that I'm using. Old San Quentin weights that are welded on the damn thing. Uh, uh, the bench is just a steel, uh, um, sh- you know, thick sheet metal or an iron bench. No padding, nothing. I mean, it's, it's from San Quentin. Everything's rusty. I probably got freaking tetanus from this shit. And... He's like, Debo Dog, you want to come out here and get some of this? And it was first platoon, and they were all doing hand-to-hand. Well, I didn't know my background. And I was only about 155 pounds at the time, 160 pounds. And these guys are all seasoned recon marines, so they're big and strong and violent. I go out there, and with simple kung fu and boxing, I'm dropping guys, I'm throwing guys, then two or three dudes try to get on top of me. I'm sweeping them, and he's like, whoa, 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 Debo Dog, Debo Dog. Everybody just calm down. It's obvious you got some training. <laughs> ever since then, because he's a consummate martial artist, ever since then, me and this guy were like that, like peas and carrots. And, and he'd call me from the barracks. And, and he'd call me to the flat tops where the offices were just to try new martial arts techniques that he had just done with the FBI or something like that. Hey, Debo Dog, what'd you think about this? And we, and we do pistol disarms and such. This is the late 90s. Uh, so this is the kind of culture it was there. And uh, thank God, because of my incredible platoon sergeant, platoon commander, uh, Captain Dill, and, and uh, Staff Sergeant Johnson, Gunny Johnson, and Captain Dill had just picked up Cap. I mean, he might have been Lieutenant Dill still. He was a platoon commander, and he was the XO of the unit, the executive officer, as a lieutenant. That's how small everything was. And they invested in me. They loved me. They put me through the hardest training, but when it was time to give me accolades, they always did, and I went to corporal's course to square me away because I started hanging out with the guys with long hair too much, and they thought I was getting a little too loose, so they sent me to corporal's course. I demolished it. Honor grad, Iron Man, most motivated award. I had so many trophies and awards up there. I couldn't hold them all in my arms, and what was genius is First Sergeant Smith brought in my uh, team and my platoon out of the field in field camis. In Marine Corps, everybody is uh, uniform. We don't have to do that. We had our pockets sewn different. We were still camied up. My team and my platoon came in, uh, camied up, brown boots, just to see my graduation. And if you could have seen the eyes of all the others that that were there at Corporal's course, they were like, holy shit. So I understood this awe that he felt and why he was inspired to start at the beginning and and get worked um, because the level of glory and the level of respect I think as man as, as people as people I think we are all searching for that and and want that some of us are further down the line maybe even in our souls if you follow um, Gary Zukov's work Seat of the Soul or some of our souls may be uh, at a different point on the wheel, similar to s- some uh, Tibetan Buddhism, that we're at a tipping point of uh, a quantum new way of being. And so that's why some of us are so attracted to leadership and co- so attracted to leadership, competition, and facing fear. 
whether it's in sport, uh, whether it's in education, whatever in medicine, whatever it is, but we're attracted to it. Um, I understood, and I did very well because of that. Along those lines, I want to back up sure. a little ways to okay. when you first became attracted to things like that, oh. when you first got attracted, even actually, I want like to back up to even before you got attracted to superheroes, yes. and just talk about, I mean, you were an incredible human being, and you've ah. done amazing things, but you had a rough start and I feel like that's yes. a big part of Maybe why so. you've been so driven. Maybe so. so. I just want to talk about Maybe like, so. Okay, we're going to get into this. We'll get into this. I'm wondering though how much that's why I'm wondering now as I'm getting older do I have more alien DNA or more something DNA because because when we read about it and look at it paper when I look objectively at my life it does not make sense the beginning. Um, very few come out of my background to do what I'm doing now. I mean I get to travel around the world, lead races with Spartan. Um, I rebuild coral reefs and, and, and uh, are at the tip of the spear in ocean conservation. I'm loved everywhere I go now. Gosh, I, I, I had no idea that there would be um, such a watershed of goodness in my life considering where I started. But even then, I look back, I didn't even really recognize I was poor or that we were in any way different than anybody else. I was always the looking at the sunny side of life. I mean, since I was two or three years old, I was looking at the sunny side of life. And uh, I loved animals and nature. I tried to teach myself to swim in the canals. I thought I was the raddest freaking um, Johnny Quest, uh, a man from Atlantis. I thought I was the raddest little dude in the universe, and I was like three or four years old, and I'd be in the canal, and I guess the canal's about that deep, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, and then I'd uh, capture frogs, little frogs, and put them in a bucket, and then release them and watch them hop. Um, My brother Caesar and I got a kite. My daddy, Rudy Reyes Sr., and he was a Marine as well in Vietnam, and a policeman and a lawman, And 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 he struggled deeply with PTSD and alcoholism. He brought us home a kite, and he had already split up. My mom was trying to split up with him. Little Michael was probably an infant. He was an infant. Caesar was probably two and a half, and I was maybe four. And I I was already sophisticated enough to tie a square knot on the eyelet of those uh, triangle kites. And I remember putting the decals, the eye decals. It was black, had a white um, uh, centerpiece that you... Had a, had a grommet and you would tie the string on and you put the tails on you put the two crazy eyes on it very rock and roll hot rod style I, I only I was so excited we didn't have any string so I found some jute cord and it was only about two feet long I was so motivated to get that kite flying so I tied that thing on and me and Caesar just ran around the backyard with this kite with two feet of string and we were like yeah we were like flying we're flying so this is the way I was from Jump Street and uh, and I I learned a lot um, I learned a lot about cruelty very quickly and I knew that I was the opposite of it I had a a grandfather, my grandfather was on my mom's side of the house. Little did I know that I was, uh, I was a bastard son. Little did I know I had another father. And, but the whole family did. And this is a Mexican-American and a Mexican culture, a Catholic culture. They looked down at my mom really bad. My mom was very young. Um, my mom had 
probably twice the horrible childhood that I did, and so did her uncle, or so did her brothers. Lots of physical abuse, poverty, sexual abuse, and there was a lot of racism back then too. And my mom looks as white as I am, um, and I look European. My mom was mostly European too, but her father had more mestizo blood in it, and Tejano, and they're all Tejano, and they were of a lower class. So we all worked the fields. They they're field workers, migrant workers that we now see. We're in a condition now that we see migrant workers as, as illegal immigrants uh, from across the border, and many are. Uh, I'd say most are, maybe even all. Back then, Americans were doing this, but they were in a sense of the lower class. They were, they were Mexican-American. But nobody spoke English in the valley then. Everybody spoke Spanish. It was truly Mexico. Um, so my mother grew up in a time where she was caught between cultures too. And she learned to very much hate Anglo people, white people. And she definitely tried to import that on us too. It was, can you guys even imagine thinking that way? It's hard to imagine thinking that way, but that was pervasive because actually I never really saw an Anglo person until my mom started working at this really awesome nightclub and the musicians were Anglo and uh, were white and, um, and one of them, his name is Homer, and he did magic. I was in love with him. Um, my grandfather, because of that dynamic, was horrible, and he was an abusive, abusive man. He abused his sons horribly, and therefore his sons abused my mom horribly. Um, he would hurt me. He would always, um, in the corn stalks, there's these big larvae, June bug larvae, and they are ugly. You know, they have the head of of a June bug and these these three legs up front, and a massive caterpillar in the back end looks like a like a a fat, ugly worm filled with pus. You know, these larvae, and he would always put them in my hair and down in my shirt. And I'm only three, four years old. Frightening, and for a long time. Do you know the first time I, I went on an inner city? program when I was in fourth grade in Missouri in the Ozarks. I was living in Kansas City. I got to go on a program with, you know, Latin, traditionally Latino and, and inner city blacks and some poor whites to the summer camp. I was so traumatized I couldn't put a, a worm on a hook. It was just too much because of how my grandfather used to treat me. And then, uh, and, he, and he just did some immense things. Um, Where was, like, was your dad still in the picture at this point? Or was it your stepdad? Like, my dad, well, he's, I guess, I mean, they call him my daddy. I mean, it's Rudy Ray Sr. He gave me his name. How profound of a man is that? In that culture, to say, yes, Norma, that's my mother, I'm going to marry you with somebody else's child in your stomach, and that's going to be my son. And my daddy always called me his number one son. It would make me cry. I, I never knew, nor would I have known, because of the love I got from that man. Um, he taught me everything. Um, he, he had a, he had an ab wheel back then. <laughs> I remember doing that ab wheel in 1973, 74, you know, and he had dumbbells. He's a Marine and he was a lawman and I remember seeing him come home. My mother and him never got along. He was in love with my mother. My mother was not in love with him. Um, my mother wasn't in love with anything. She still isn't. Um, and I remember though, but damn, my mom can cook and she was pretty and she was sexy and that's what you had to do as a woman. And you get it? Uh, you didn't, women didn't work. 
they worked the house. And she had cooked, baked some blueberry muffins. And I woke up. My dad was coming off a shift. It was about 6 or 7 in the morning. And I remember being small and looking in the kitchen and seeing the light come in. And the table is these formica table with these, like, they look like little Nike swooshes on them all over, indicative of the time. And these kind of cheap chairs and seeing and smelling the leather of my dad's gun belt, looking that big 357 python on his hip, and, and seeing the light hitting on his brass. and I just knew that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be just like that. And seeing his dress blue uniform um, picture from boot camp, which was the very first portrait I ever drew when I was six years old, I drew his portrait, and I made sure I got every button correct. And, and, uh, and it, it, that was my father. My father was an icon. I rarely got to see him. They were already fighting all the time, and my grandfather hated my dad. Why? I think he hated him. I think he did not respect my dad for marrying my mom because I was somebody else's son. And my dad doesn't, doesn't handle disrespect. And, um, and my grandfather was charged with watching me one night while my mom and my dad are trying to work at Little Michael's an infant and they took Caesar and, and my, my father, Rudy Reyes' mother, Pilo, they went to the next town over from McAllen to Far, maybe it was Edinburgh. And, I, and my grandfather wanted, was supposed to take care of me. Uh, he drank all day and night and and had yellow eyes and was just mean and he took me to go play bingo and gamble and there's so much smoke that's why I never like smoking so much smoke and, and I after a while I was getting tired I was only three or four and I said Grandpa can I go home and he curses at me in Spanish and he goes you want to fucking go home you want to fucking go home you little motherfucker and I started to cry and uh, he grabbed me by my arm, drug me to the truck with his other drunk buddy, threw me in the truck, drove me to the house, dragged me just by my arm. My feet did not even touch the ground, threw me on the porch, got in the truck, and left. Well, my parents, well, mom and dad and my brothers, they didn't come home till two days later. They were on a trip to see family. So I searched for a way to get in the house. Of course, the door's locked. So I remember mantling up, mu doing my first muscle up to the windowsill and, um, and um, thank God the window was open a little bit and I shimmied up there with my little tippy toes on the windowsill with my hand underneath there and then finally got the window open and I got inside and I saw people using telephones but I didn't know how to use it so I just grabbed the telephone and was saying, Mommy, Daddy, come home, come home. I didn't know how to use it yet, you know. And then I started crying. And then I started a level of icy fear, um, icy fear. And I cried and cried and I cried and cried. And then maybe eventually I fell asleep and, they, and nobody came home. Finally, when they, they came home, um, my father and my dad, my father and, and my grandfather got in a heated argument and then they left, and Dad had to go freaking go to work. And um, somehow, I was, there was some little toys like these little these little duck soaps that my mom got for my brother Caesar. And I just loved to play with toys. We didn't have many toys. I played with marbles. Ganicas and trompos, which are wooden tops. I thought I was the smartest kid in the world because I, at four, could wind up that top. 
I just did it again recently. Thank you, Joa. Thank you, Joa, for bringing me some tops. I did it again, and it took me a couple tries, but then I got that thing going. It's a whole evolution. And uh, so I was looking for this little rubber top, or this little soap, but it was shaped like a duck, and I was climbing up on the dresser. I was always climbing shit and getting into stuff. You know me. I mean, I'm climbing trees, always on the roof, getting whooped all the time for being on the roof. (laughs) And... uh, didn't even slow my stride down. They made me get the switch, and they whooped me, and I'm like, I'm going to get right back up on that roof. And uh, they was maybe some kind of mechanic. My grandfather was a mechanic, and there was like a, a little light bulb, maybe went to a timing light or something like that, and I broke it. He was really drunk, and so he still dressed like he was in the 50s. He had these skinny, skinny belts. Um, very suit, suit style and he took off his belt and he worked me so bad he cut me up and hit me so bad um, I was on my back and just covering up and trying to scoot away and um, I guess you, you go into shock the little nervous system the little boys you know you can only handle so much so I couldn't stop um, making that that gasping noise that <gasps> and I, I, I just couldn't I was in shock I guess looking back so yeah you couldn't catch your breath I couldn't catch my breath and his wife, who normally hated me, now see, remember, I didn't know back then that I was somebody else's son and that everybody knew exactly. and everybody, everybody hated my biological father. They hated Rudy, my dad. They hated me and they hated my mother. That's a lot of negative energy. And that's where I grew up in. The next day, my mom was already working on divorcing my dad and she was working at a nightclub and she was partying this is the 70s she came back to give us boys a a bath and I was cut up still so bad and when she saw me what we used for medicine then is lard Monteca, which uh, there's some science behind it. Lard's got enzymes in it, just like when you get hit in the face, you put it on a steak. It's the cold and the enzymes of the raw steak that help dissipate um, uh, swelling and then bring in fresh blood for healing. In a sense, you're feeding your injury so that you can break down the lactic acid of impact. Okay? So that I had lard still all over me, and she started... She got upset, and she never went against her dad, but she did. And then she called my dad. My dad came over, and I'll never forget it. And it was such a righteous thing. It was such a righteous thing. First, I saw my mommy crying on the bed, and so I got up there, and I said, What are you crying? Why are you crying, mommy? What's wrong? But then I also saw we had these curtains that had flowers on them, and on the other side of the curtains... Um, were bushes and I saw the the um, shadows of all the hummingbirds and I remember thinking it's just so beautiful and then I get off the bed I mean we have a bed right here I remember that was a, quite a jump back then because I was so small as coming off the bed you know and I go running outside and there's my dad in his police uniform with his fucking fucking 357 out at, at the head of my grandfather my grandfather's got his knife out and it's about to fucking go down. And I run over there and I grab my dad's leg. I'm like, Daddy, Daddy, are you okay? And they're cursing. And my dad then cocks the fucking hammer. And, and I remember thinking, kill him. 
and the police are there too. His boys are there. Everyone's screaming in Spanish, trying to calm everybody down. My mom's crying. And then I don't remember after that. And then I and then my mother left South Texas and took us boys to um, to Kansas City, where her mother, who was one of the few women, to get out of that culture and became a nurse and a. How old are you at this point? Four. Four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then took me to Kansas City, and Carmen uh, Cantu, uh, she, her family, the Cantus were all from a veteran community and all focused on education. So she had a great house in the suburbs. We lived there. I started to have, I had a great school. I went to a special Montessori school. This is probably what gave me that huge boost of education. So I did eight hour kindergarten, not this little four hour kindergarten. And so I learned to read and write in kindergarten. Um, we had good clothes. We had bicycles. Oh my God, I remember I got my first bike. These kids now don't even know nothing about this. They used to make little kids bikes without inner tubes, hard rubber tires. And the older kids had, a B, had you know early BMX bikes and they're jumping ramps. And I'm in this old steel bike with rubber tires and cacao, cacao. Uh, I had a righteous life for a couple of years. My grandmother was also a hell of a taskmaster and insisted I studied. She was an avid reader. I get a lot of traits from her. And um, she had left your grandfather yes. like... So, a few years, maybe five, maybe ten years, because okay. my grandfather used to beat her and and abuse her, sexually abuse her. He was a tyrant. I don't know what... I'm sure his childhood was horrible, too, but I don't care. I don't make excuses for people anymore. Um, I can't. I don't get the bandwidth to do it. But my grandmother got out, and she died very early, 51. She worked herself to death for our family because she was like me. She was mission oriented. She was she was uh, um, she was totally immersed with the objective. She was immersed in execution. She became a surgical technician. She thrived on it, and she had a friend that would always come over. I think her boyfriend, but they wouldn't call it that. I didn't know what it was called. His name was Bob. And they would sit at that table and they would smoke cigarettes and talk all night. And um, when she passed. My mother, I guess, got some money, but she got hooked up with this guy who she's been with on and off forever, and and they just blew it on drugs and having a great time. Before you get into that, though, there was something in your book that I really wanted to ask you about, yeah. and I don't know if my timeline's correct, so sure. um, was it just after your grandmother died that... You and your brothers and your mom were in the car. And yeah, you were that happened about a year. Yeah, that happened about a year later. Okay. A year or two later. So after the money ran out with the drugs and the partying, okay. then it got rough. And then, then the man that she's with started hitting her sometimes. And my mom was a wreck anyway. She just looked beautiful, could cook like you cannot believe, but she was a wreck. And yes, and and so I was really taking charge as the head of household. Um, trying to protect my mom and my brothers, but I was still making a lot of excuses for my mom. And I think that's, that's something only recently now have I been able to transcend and understand I can hold someone to account with love, but I can hold them to account. And if they're not willing to hold themselves to account, then I, I'm not going to waste my life force with it, you know? And, uh, my mother's, 
wrecked, beaten up and crying and driving around this cul-de-sac and Michael and Caesar crying in the back and we don't know where we're going to go. And um, that was the story of my childhood with my mom, driving in circles, kids crying, not knowing where to go. And uh, I started growing up on the streets. Um, the man she's with, her kids were really hard inner city kids, Mexican, American from the West Side in Kansas City, and were really abusive to us as well because it was very much gang culture. He was a gangbanger himself, uh, a man that my mom was with. And um, a culture based on tyranny, uh, very alpha, but alpha to a level of pathology. And, and because we were, I was, was fair-skinned too, and I was an athlete, and I could beat the kids, but they were cruel. They could beat me with cruelty. They had no problems punching me in the face. They had no problems. See, I couldn't even imagine hitting people really yet. Um, I couldn't imagine that level of cruelty. And, and they would make fun of my mom and say horrible things, things that I just couldn't imagine. But I had to, but I had to get tough. I got tougher. It, it'll put some hard bark on you. And, uh, so then I started excelling at wrestling and boxing and sports to get bigger, stronger. I'd already been lifting weights and doing stuff with my dad since I was born. But now I got real serious about it. And it became my identity. And because it, it's a survival technique. And uh, slowly but surely, we started getting thrown from one place to another. Then we got to go live with my daddy, which was awesome for a while. But my dad was deep in the throes of PTSD and alcoholism. None of us knew what any of this stuff was back then. To be fair, my biological father, who came from a very uh, well-off family, an educated family, super stud athlete, and uh, I guess had a really magnificent personality, uh, he was in Vietnam with my uncle, and he never recovered. He never held a job again. He was addicted to heroin, and uh, I mean, he did cocaine, but he was really addicted to heroin his whole life. There's, there's even possibilities that he died of AIDS, not cancer. That the, the cancer was from AIDS. Um, my that family was so well off, they could hide him away. And I guess they would take him to the VA all the time because he would have manic spells. But he never saw me once. He never met me. He knew I existed. He, my aunt ran into him in the grocery store down in South Texas, showed a picture of me to him. And my daddy, Rudy Reyes Sr., had so much more grit and love that he, although he was very sick, he still tried, tried with all his heart. And he wasn't perfect at all. He was a lot, I have more introspection to his life because he was just like us. Got heavy into freaking drinking, violence, women. Uh, he loved, he loved violence. And that's part of what he loved about being a cop. He, in those days in Texas, man, that's, in a sense, it's force protection. When you're super violent, criminals are very scared. They were scared of him like he was still in the Marine Corps with a grunt, Platoon, like they're going to shoot you and shoot up your house, and they're going to beat you to death. That's how they kept the law down there in the valley. And God, I admired him though. <laughs> Damn, he was bad, and uh, and and he was so bad. And uh, and my brothers exalted him. Myself, and my brothers, when he come home, we'd fight to be the ones to take off his boots, his cowboy boots. 
his cowboy hat always went on a little stand. We'd fight to who who was the one that got to do the his brass. So we used brass. So these new kids don't know nothing about nothing. I'm telling you. So how you used to put, there was no anodized shit back then. It was all real brass. So you had to put brass on it and you had to clean it. His name, his, his name placard, his whistle, his everything. I mean, we took pride in this. You know what I'm saying? Um, but he came home less and less. And he was married to another woman. And I have a lovely brother uh, and two sisters down there. And and he was not there for them either. The closest person he loved, or who he loved the most, was me. He would come home only to see me, but it, it only it went from every other day to once a week, every couple of weeks. Who knows what he was doing? Fighting, drinking, and chasing women. He didn't. Get, the truth is, he didn't give a fuck anymore. And I understand why. It takes a toll on you. There was no therapy. There was no nothing back then. There, there was nobody even talking about any of this. And as a matter of fact, if you talk, and his father was a freaking scumbag, deadbeat, um, career military man, never gave a shit about my dad. Who do you talk to when you don't have a father? And how about those uncles and fathers that you do have? They've all been through World War II and Korea, and they're like, "Shut the fuck up, kid. You don't know nothing." You know, I was. I was cutting off freaking Japanese heads and flamethrowing people to get to, to death. I was I was killing people with a flamethrower. Shut and the fuck up. Come home and be normal. Yeah, yeah, and right. and then Vietnam was not a, pro, a, a popular war at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine this massive dynamic, and that's where my dad came out of. And I have so much more understanding for him now and love for him now more than ever because I found myself going through these same processes later. Um, I ended up in horrible schools. They got worse and worse and worse. Um, did inner he, city. Did he ever lay a hand on you? No. No. One t- you know that's what? That man huge. That man could just look at you. and and deep, I think that's the way it used to be in the old day. Your father freaking looks at you and says a word in a deep voice. Oh, shit, damn near shit your pants. <laughs> so, you know, no, we didn't mess around. But then again, we were in love with them. We were, I mean, I mean, we were in love with our dad. Uh, he was the greatest thing ever and funny and genius. And, uh, and he took you to your first Bruce Lee movie, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, was a, he was in love with John Wayne, martial arts flicks, uh, and comic books. And so he, he took me to see a triple feature with Bruce Lee. I'd also always go watch the Godzilla movies with him. And, and then his favorite pastime is to, uh, he had a seersucker uh, pillow, seersucker fabric on the outside, busted up feathers in it, and he would wrap it up in his arms and lay on the bed and look at the TV, and he'd ha- and he made sure his sons were all around him to watch westerns uh, and gun smoke, and uh, and then when we watched uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid, I thought that was the baddest. So he loved Chuck Norris because he could kick ass in cowboy boots. I'm telling you what, don't even get me started about Walker, Texas Ranger. My dad idolized this mug. Um, and uh, um, we watched Outlaw, or, uh, we watched Lone Wolf McQuaid, which is directed by, um, I think it was directed maybe by Sergio Leone, the very famous spaghetti western um, Italian director. That's why it's such a beautiful film. It's so beautiful that you don't even notice, you don't even notice. Uh, Chuck Norris's horrible acting. Um, it's that good. And I remember my... And, and now it's freaking Kane from Kung Fu is the bad guy. Uh, what's his name? Um, what's, what's the guy that played Kung Fu? I'll watch, I watch Kung Fu all the time. David Carradine is the bad guy. They're fighting over a woman. They, he kills 
his ex, which is now with Lone Wolf McQuaid, kills his dog, buries McQuaid in his Bronco, and then he freaking gets his fire back, by the way. Um, uh, Chuck Norris is a veteran as well. And he freaking throws that supercharged engine in a drive, busts out, goes on a one-man killing spree. And I remember when the woman was killed, my dad, first time I ever seen dad cry, he was crying, and he was drunk, and he was thinking about my mom. He's like, he loves that woman. He loves that woman. He didn't know that we were paying attention or that I was paying attention. But it was a throwback to how he feels about my mom. And, you know, he'd still get drunk even before he passed and sometimes call my mom and say, you know, if you want me to come back, I'll come back. Yeah, that's that, oh, it's just profound, man. Um, but we just didn't have anything else. And Dad stopped coming around, too. And um, and we got sick. My brothers and I got worms and, and then lice really badly. And imagine being ashamed. First of all, we're in shitty, ratty hand-me-down clothes. I've got shoes that are two sizes too big from a step-cousin. No haircuts. It just looks shabby. And this is when the world started shifting. This is when MTV was created and everybody needed parachute pants and status was your Nikes. And this is when the world started shifting in America and in the world about what you're wearing and your, um, what you're driving is your status. I guess maybe it's always been status driven if we look back in, in antiquity, but never, at least in the Western culture, had status been so wrapped around pop culture and materials. We didn't have it. So we were ashamed and made fun of all the time. And still, I worked out every day. And, uh, and, and seeing that movie had inspired you oh, to start going to the park with your brother. Yes, well, well, Bruce Lee was an icon, still is to this day. Mm-hmm. And what, what did he do? You never saw him kissing a girl. So I, I was like, you know, I, I was allergic to girls back then. Like, oh. And he was always saved the day, yet all the girls loved him. And he was strong as hell freaking incredible physique and was doing martial arts that no one had ever seen before and I was just I was just enthralled uh, and the confidence if you watch his films now just just watch his stage presence don't even look at the martial arts just watch him you can't keep your eyes off of him you know you know what I mean when he is on stage or when he's on screen you cannot keep your eyes off of him I didn't understand the complexities of that at the time. All I knew is I'd never seen a more warrior, more confident, more charismatic person. And that's, that, that was a standard of manhood. And then the next thing, though, the next chapter is when I saw First Blood. When I, and, and, and I saw Rocky, of course, and I love Rocky. Rocky IV is my, probably one of my favorite hero films of all time, Rocky IV. Um, But Rocky was PG. First Blood was rated R. And it was a Vietnam veteran. And and now I saw the totality of a warrior. That a warrior is actually quite wounded. But deadly. And I guess maybe because I'd already been abused and lost so much in my life, I could already identify with being wounded. I could, I could identify with, with John Rambo. And later, when, when I would contract with my boys, um, when, when First Blood would come on, all of us would gather in a hotel room like this, 20 of us, and we'd be drinking and telling stories about our ops, and many of us had been on those ops together, and we'd watch First Blood, and, and you know, 
every time he was shooting up and shooting up the town and fucking up uh, Sheriff Tease, we would be like, fucking get some. And then, and then when he's when he's falling apart in front of Colonel Troutman, you know, we'd all be in tears, not saying a word. It's interesting that I was attracted to these films and stories that were, in a sense, um, it was like looking into a um, a magical glass that I w- would be those people, those archetypes. How could you even comprehend as a child? I, I think one, maybe that's why also I'm really into quantum physics and I'm really into life and death because that creation, that maelstrom of uh, creation and destruction, it's, it's so immense and so beyond what our, our human day-to-day uh, wants, to, wants to be involved with and have a relationship with. But even as a boy, I was drawn to it. I was drawn to the agony and ecstasy. Um, I was drawn to it in a way that was frightening, but I somehow had a sixth sense. And maybe that's why Zukov says that about the wheels, wheels of souls, that I was, I was John Rambo even when I was little. And now that I'm older, I'm 47, I'm more of a child than ever. So I wonder what this thing is called time. I wonder if it's such a thing um, that we're all living a quantum existence, sometimes in our dreams and when we have deja vu or see the future, uh, we break through this construct that we need, probably due to the lack of perception of our brains, how they're constructed. We have to see things linear, in a linear fashion. Um, I was looking at myself as a 10-year-old and in love with it, but also in pain but more in love. And that's probably why I became a recon marine. Oh, I know that's what drew me. I mean, this was a standard of heroism and sacrifice. And sacrifice, even as a boy, I was attracted to the wounds of war in some ways because I strangely, intuitively knew that that's the last piece of suffering, almost like uh, Jesus and and other uh, martyr saviors before transcend, transcendence to pure light. And sure enough, I mean, here I am speaking to you about it. I'm thinking about it now. My life is so much more filled with light now, more than ever, uh, although I have way more wounds and scars than ever. Um, and that brings me back to, you know, with media, television, Generation Kill, or I'm doing survival shows, and I uh, helped with uh, and did a, most of the intense military advising for the Marine Corps Super Bowl commercial. I just did a great film called Semper Fi with Henry Alex Rubin and uh, Jai Courtney, a dear brother of mine. Why I find film so profound, when you watch The Deer Hunter, the visceral uh, emptiness uh, and and, and disembowelment of your heart and soul when they're uh, being made to play Russian roulette and they spin the pistol... And, and the, the Vietnamese man is going, Mao! Mao! And you see De Niro's eyes change. He's like, mmm. and then he fucking goes, ha, 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 And he's like, come on, Nikki, we got to do this, Nikki. I'm putting more bullets in the gun, Nikki. You ready to do this? 
something about that agony and the ecstasy, I said to myself when I got into Generation Kill and afterwards, this is a medium that I must understand more, master, and I need to craft and create uh, a new archetype. The hero, wounded warrior, healer, leader. And that's what I'm interested in doing now. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And... Um, yeah, it's heavy to reflect back on all that. And it, I mean, you know, there's so much. I guess some of it's I'm 47 years old. We've not even scratched on any of my missions. We've not scratched on Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, Iraq, uh, Northeast Africa. In some ways, we don't have to talk much about it because, because what I've described already with Bruce Lee and First Blood and, and John Rambo, and remember when John, the song... Uh, the song that they play, uh, you know, it's a long road when you're on your own. Fuck. Yeah. If that doesn't say it all. Yeah. It's a long road when you're on your own. And, um, and then remember Rambo's character switched now into this quasi-American military might demigod afterwards. Remember Indestructible? That was not nearly as interesting. Uh, but of course I was in love with Rambo, the character. And what did Stallone do? And we can appreciate this. Every film, he brought a newer and higher level of condition. Same in the Rocky pictures. That's why Rocky Four is my favorite. I don't know if I've ever seen a put together, as, as put together physique all around as Stallone in those times. Look at Stallone in freaking Rambo 3 in Afghanistan. My God. People give Stallone a hard time. Do you know how hard that man works? Imagine he's working full-time on his body and full-time on set and writing and directing and learn horsemanship to play that freaking game that, you know, polo meets um, uh, Mongolian hordes meets soccer with a bloated goat carcass. He did all that stuff for real. Uh, what? Doesn't he have, like, several kids on top of it, too? Oh, he's got, yeah, I think he's got maybe three to five yeah. And, uh, yes, oh, and I, when I got to meet him, I mean, I, he's like, oh, hey, Rudy, you're looking good, you know, at Gunner's gym, Gunner Peters. And, you know, he, he got totally into in weapon systems and talking to me about 338 Lapua. He loves to shoot. And um, that work ethic, again, back to, I'm looking at these icons throughout my life, not only driven to their passion and driven for excellence, obsessed with it obsessed people ask me all the time about my workout regime I don't have one I, I do instinctual stuff and I just get to a place in which I'm breathing hard and all the noise is gone and now I'm in slipstream and now I am doing an art piece like a violent art piece is what I'm doing and the diet I don't diet I just eat less than most people and drink more water and uh, probably have more passion um, but I knew that something about the vehicle of strength, martial art, sport, that vehicle, by watching Bruce Lee and looking at Stallone's journeys, um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme as well, that there is something pure through that journey that will get you to a level of mastery and almost icon glory and leadership. I knew it intuitively. I observed it. I watched it. So that's, that's a, 
a blueprint. And look how they're still icons. They are icons today, Schwarzenegger as well. I saw Conan at the theaters, and I remember playing with the broomstick outside, swinging it just like uh, like Conan did. And what did Conan do to become an excellent swordsman and warrior? He went to the Far East, remember? He goes out to the Mongolians. And his martial art instructor, the swordsman, he was a really heavy-duty dude from Japan, in truth. And... Uh, or maybe he was Chinese. I, I think he was Japanese. He was Japanese. It looked like Japanese swordsmanship. Uh, do you know what I did yesterday? I saw a lightsaber, a toy lightsaber at the office. And then there was a ghillie suit. And I, uh, because they were doing photographs there, I put on that ghillie suit. And I'll show you the video later. I freaking got that lightsaber on. I turned on. And then I'm doing freaking Conan. Yesterday. So obviously these icon archetypes, they influence and they hit us so hard. And I was so sensitive to it, possibly by not having any structure of a family. And so they were my family. I imagined when I read Frank Miller's Daredevil, that was my big brother that I never had. Wolverine was uh, was my warrior uncle that would cut through hundreds of bodies to protect me in my mind. Uh, so I kept myself around comic books, hero films, training, wrestling, boxing, and then I got into Chinese martial arts. As my Kung Fu teacher, Chun Man Sit, would say, well, Ludi, it is written... <laughs> But of course, you hero. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd always come back from war to go see Chin Men sit. Me and Cherie, my wife, would uh, go back to my hometown and I'd always train with sit again. And he noticed there was a whole new level of violence, intensity, and strength that I had. But I couldn't have been this without him first. He was absolutely revolutionary. And after my last one in Fallujah Ramadi, we spent time eating dim sum. And if you ever watch some Chinese people, old world Chinese people eat, watch out. Chicken's foot hanging out of his mouth, spitting across the table. Because they, they get down. The Chinese eat and talk, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, um, Sifu, were you, weren't you worried that I was going to die? Because my brother's, my brother, little brother Michael got extreme PTSD from me being over there. And he says, no, Ludi, I mean, it's written. I mean, of course, uh, first you become champion. Uh, nobody even know my name. They just say, that's Ludi's teacher. <laughs> and then you go uh, to Marine Corps. You go to Special Force. You have to go to war and then win and live and come back home. It is written. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't really necessarily believe in time the way we do. He's into quantum physics heavy. Man. Yeah. That's that's cool. Isn't that interesting? It's yeah. odd, but there must be some truth to it. Look where we're standing now. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. and I want to I want to sure. ask you about those missions though, because there sure. was I'm trying to remember where I read it, but there were two missions you went on that you said were the most dangerous, or they impacted you the most. Yeah, probably the impact. And we did so many heavy uh, heavy duty ops. They, a lot of those years blend together to me. And I think also the bandwidth of the brain, I understand now. Um, I was so immersed in a task and the mission. And remember, you have a 360 degree threat and you're always uh, tritted. You're always tired or hungry or dehydrated. 
but still we were so much better than everyone else because we could exist at that state because our training was much harder in a lot of ways than anything I did in war. Like I said, many of us die in training, still do. So uh, a lot of my ops I forgot. I don't think because that part of the brain to store them was aware. It didn't need to be. My brain, my midbrain, um, the, the reptile brain is so evolved mixed with the intellect of the cerebral cortex. Um, we are the most intelligent, um, creative uh, painters of violence in the world, and that's why we're able to live and be successful. But the frontal lobe is off of line. Um, the frontal lobe is offline because it's, it's where higher thinking and decision-making is made, but it's too slow. It's too slow for combat, for real fighting. Remember, sometimes, I swear, when my enemy, sometimes we are fighting them as close as I am right now to that door, I could see the bullets coming at me because the brain is heightened. This is too slow to act, the frontal lobe. That is why we have immense uh, veterans, especially heavy combat veterans, immense uh, uh, impulse uh, deficit if we can't control impulse. And so now add in violence, drugs, alcohol, driving fast. So many of my guys have died on motorcycles back home, needing it because this does not work anymore. It eventually shuts down completely. There's no reason for it to work. You do years and years of combat. There's no reason for it to be online. We're, that's why I imagine that we must have, have to have such IQs because in a sense, we're, we're working at a deficit IQ now because the frontal lobe is not working you have to be so good that you can still exist and think and uh, uh, problem solve and, and be creative in combat where lives, thousands of lives are on the line. That part just blows my mind because you're making split second decisions that could have you killed and a whole bunch of other people For killed. sure. And that's like, that's your daily life. Day to day, 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 day and night. Yeah. And you know what's so rad and so wild? During that time... And this is interesting about the fabric of special operations culture and the fabric of war culture. Um, I always give love and props to my Marine Corps infantry. My gosh, there's no more deadly thing than a freaking Marine Corps infantry grunt platoon uh, or a line company. Watch out. All they do is two things, kill people and break shit, and that's what's going to happen. Um, the fabric, these war cultures and, and special operations cultures, the fabric is... Every single one of us. And now remember, at my unit at Recon, we had, some, we had some wealthy guys that came from prestigious schools. We, our officers, magnificent. Our enlisted, magnificent. We had lacrosse players and water polo players. Regardless of the socioeconomic, all of us had the exact same hunger, passion, and drive to pursue manhood. I mean, every one of them. Every one of them was completely on board with do or die at all times with the levity, with the laughter, regardless of their race or where they come from or socioeconomic. What a beautiful example of true multiculturalism and merit-based, uh, uh, a merit-based system and culture for, for village and, and for our society at large, uh, society as a whole. It is, it's a level of love that is hard to ever attain again. Uh, 
no wonder we could be so successful. You know, I, some of my brothers were successful, even though they, um, R- Sergeant Eddie Wright, he lost, he was shot point blank with an RPG, he took both his arms off. He was still successful in the fight. He was the only one still awake while everybody else is unconscious and they were shot up too. And he is the one that was barking out orders and waking up Eric Cucker to get behind the or to get into the driver's side. Eric's elbow's gone. His ears are fucking blown out. There's fucking shrapnel everywhere. He was still successful in the fight without most of his leg and out his arm and his hand. All of that gone. Still successful. That means there is a fabric of culture and imagine a waterfall, a continuous waterfall of love, rage, and passion to absolutely stare oblivion in the face and say, fuck you on a daily. Do you have... That's very powerful. Oh, very much so. And how many how many years did you do that for? Well, I started in recon. I did seven years in recon, and then I contracted for another seven or eight. Man. Yeah. Do you have a particular mission that just, it just stands out for you? Something that impacted you the most? So, there's so many. Well, how about the first time I get in the heaviest firefight of my life on the invasion in 2003? <laughs> and I'm pretty seasoned. I already fought in Afghanistan. And this freaking tilt-a-whirl truck is running at us, and we've got to freaking dump rounds and kill them uh, because we've got a blocking position. We've got to get past them and continue to chop off the head of the snake of the of the Saddam regime and I'm pouring fire into the truck and we're seeing our lasers, our PEC 2s and our night vision and, and we're ripping up the driver and his passenger and there's shit going everywhere and then my fuck, and then I, there's, my weapon's not working, my weapon's not working I'm like, it's not working oh, I'm out of, I'm out of rounds <laughs> so in the midst, I mean, you know so there's that. You go through a few of those kinds of things. Um, <laughs> Afghanistan, you cannot imagine. 70 kilometer movements under the cover of darkness. I, none of us had Humvee licenses. I never drove a Humvee. And now I've got night vision on and we're I'm close to careening off of cliffs. Uh, and, uh, and then when we get in a zone at the base of a mountain, digging a hole large enough to park a Humvee in and camouflage it. And then throw on our 200-pound packs of radios, weapons, and water and go up the mountain and then run LPOPs and do sniper interdictions. Um, I mean, there's so much. um, So, so, so freaking much. Um, I did Trojan Horse, which was heavy as hell, where guys like us that looked um, indigenous or uh, a a third-party workforce like the Turks that did our laundry and worked in the chow hall, I could pass as them. And then we had fake taxi cabs that were armored up to come pick me up, to take me to where the, the guest workers would go outside the wire to live and to draw out, to draw out enemy. The first enemies were policemen and we would shoot them close quarter at speed. That way, not shooting or killing any civilians. And with three minutes, get on them with sensitive site exploitation and glean all the information and phones and anything we could from them. And then with massive help with the assets of the Green Berets and triple letter agencies, do close target uh, recce's and then direct action hits on all the people they were talking about. We single-handedly shut down 
tango operations and shut down uh, IEDs as well through this level of op tempo, as close as you and I are right now, shooting and killing people who are first pulling their weapons out to shoot and kill you or capture you because they think you're just a chow hall worker. I'm wearing a dish dash or I'm looking like a contractor and uh, and our weapons are up at speed. My machine gunner with a little saw on the back is ripping through everybody. And uh, again, we are just faster, faster, more violent. Why? Because we're not thinking, not like this, not in the forehead thinking. We're existing and being just like when we're doing Olympic lifting or kickboxing or javelin. I mean, it's explode, explode. And there's a thousand physical processes happening in one second. And this is just too slow uh, to handle that. So we had Trojan horse, which was revolutionary at the time we created. We were the hunter killers for an ODA team. And, uh, and then I, I mean, you can imagine every kind of mission I did scout sniper missions in a hard pan desert, digging into the damn hard pan with pickaxes. Um, my ruck so heavy having to patrol in my rucks was so heavy. It was 250, maybe 260 pounds. And I was so strong then. But when I put it on and I'll show you pictures of these packs, uh, my teammates pulled me up and then my knees started wobbling and I was in a squat with my knees going like this and my homies thought I was, they think I'm the baddest dude in the world. They thought I was playing. I was not playing. I could not stand. I was stuck in a squat position going like this and then finally I stood. And we patrolled seven kilometers in the cover, cover of darkness tactically that way, taking knees and not making a sound and right before the sun gets up and we're into our position, digging and then taking the spoils far away, a kilometer away and setting up our hide and now we go to work. So I spent 24 hours planning and rehearsing, um, eight, 10 hours movement tactically. And if we're, in, if we're compromised or engaged, we're gonna have to fight to the death right there. And then when we finally get into position, we've got to dig and now start working, collecting, set up our sniper systems and observe the MSR uh, intersection. I mean, this is, this is on a daily basis, day, day and night basis. And then at, during the daytime, sometimes doing force patrols through the city, uh, looking for a fight, always looking for a fight. And then when the Humvees would come pick us up, my team would stay down in the, in the uh, canals and then the Humvee patrol takes off. We wait till the sun goes down then we get up as a cutoff team. Uh, we were so good at our smell and movement that the dogs wouldn't get after us. We'd do a huge button hook and then set in on a road because the vehicles would do a, a snap vehicle checkpoint and any bad guys that ran and turned the other way, we all had rockets, machine guns, and my sniper systems light them up. I had spike strips I'd throw out and we would rip everybody up. We shut down Fallujah, first recon battalion. And, uh, I mean, I did a bridge mission that's just immense that I did not remember. I'll tell you a little about this bridge mission. Um, of course, I have many stories about the sacrifices and the suffering of the Iraqi people in between. And I, I was not able to keep my word to take care of this family that helped me forever. I, my team in platoon, we killed some bad actors, some bad people on the Euphrates River. And we killed mother and father maybe, or whatever, of this retarded child that had no clothes on. I didn't even know if it was a boy or girl, and I didn't give a fuck um, because I had a job to do, and I had to make sure that my men, when they are going through the um, vestibule and the doorways, we were all checking for pressure plates. I mean, we didn't know if the houses were rigged, and one of the bad guys got to a boat 
on the Euphrates. My guys fucking smoked him. We had work to do. I have two or three different freaking uh, cross-talked chatters going on in my head from command, higher command, my team, fellow te- fellow teams uh, in zone. And I didn't remember even about that naked, mentally handicapped, physically handicapped child that can't walk. Like probably had multiple sclerosis or something like that. I've been in villages, you all, where everyone is an albino and mentally retarded from so much inbreeding because that area has been in war for 2,000 years and they can't go anywhere else. I mean, the immensity of all this, it's hard to even put into words. Uh, On this bridge mission, I totally forgot how I remembered is when I was in the Veterans Village of San Diego, my young man that I trained, Paul Wyman, who's now one of my dearest best friends, he's like my handler too, he takes care of me when I have to do big events. And he's been on his journey to redemption as well and to virtue as well. God, I love him so much. I got to see him and Bo, Big Bo Husky, last night. Um, and uh, Paul was the running a meeting called Triple Threat at this mental and, mental and drug home for wounded and psychologically wounded veterans that I was in for a year. And that was very humbling. And most of the people there... They were not good people. That's the best way to put it. Not every veteran you meet is like me. Let me tell you guys that. Uh, a lot of them there for theft and doing horrible things in the military. All drugs. I was the only where, only one of the only people there that was there because of immense PTSD from combat. And I see Paul, and Paul sees me in the in the room. He's like, huh, "What the fuck are you doing here?" Paul got me this tip by the way last night. He goes, oh, Rudy. I think he still called me Sergeant Reyes then. Sergeant, what, what are you doing here? And I said, I was like, I'm in here. And he was like, oh, oh, he gave, he gave me a hug. Well, Paul had been through the program too. He wasn't there as long, but he'd been through the program. And um, so we do our meeting talking about what we're going through. Everybody's jittery. Some of the guys from, I think it's 3-5, Dark Horse 3-5, they lost so many men when they come to our meeting, our triple threat meeting. They're all wearing sunglasses because they can't even stomach looking at the reflection of their own eyes. And when one of them, I'll never forget, a gunnery sergeant, he's speaking about running over a little girl, not having a chance to do anything about it. And when he got done speaking, he starts convulsing uncontrollably. It's so hard to think about us being so strong and so good in, in the worst environment. And now we have air conditioning and, and lights and coffee mess and we are falling the fuck apart. And it was very hard on me. This is only five years ago for me. I've, re, I've had a resurgence in my career since five years ago, thanks to Rick Elder and Beyond Clothing. Oh. Oh, those people, they mean so much to me. Bert Soren, Sornex, the whole family and strength. Bert is another one, brought me back. Brandon Lilly, Derek Woodski, um, Jen Wiederstrom, Ingrid. Um, these people brought me back. Were willing to take a chance on me after I got out of that place. And um, at the end of the meeting, this captain, I think, in the Marine Corps now, maybe even a major, he says, Sergeant Reyes, that's you, because my hair is longer. And, uh, but I was still ferociously fit. So he recognized me by my back, from the back. And he goes, it's, it's, it's me. Remember the lieutenant that uh, I was with Cat Platoon, the tow missile uh, platoon that's on top of the Humvees. 
we inserted you. Remember, we ran operations with you. I'm like, oh, yeah. How are you? So good to see you. Damn. I just got to tell you, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen, what you did. I'm like, what are you talking about? That bridge mission. And when he said that, it hit me. There's a bridge across the Euphrates that I was tasked to blow up. This is like bridge over the river Kwai. It's a smaller bridge, but it was that kind of mission. Under the cover of darkness, I had to load this bridge up with explosives. And my tow missiles were a kilometer away with their FLIR, with their Black Hawk-style optics thermals, so they could watch me. We did everything smart in recon. We always brought at least three guns to any enemy's one gun, metaphorically. All right? We say two is one, one is none in the sniper and recon community. You can never have enough ass. Ass means assets. Um, Five-man team, three of my men, They had, we had two freaking AT-4 rockets and some laws. I had my Barrett system, my big freaking sniper system there. They can blow up any vehicle. Uh, and I kept them about 300 meters away. Then I took one man... Dan Weiner, who became a football player, went to work for Triple Eight agencies, is, is a wonderful success. And he's from Chicago, from a suburb, a wealthy suburb of Chicago. And he's the guy that always has a better way of doing things. He's a leadership challenge. They gave him to me. He had dual cool. He had jump and dive on his chest and a lance corporal. And I first meet him, his hands are in his pockets, and I just start chewing his ass. And so does Cucker. And uh, they gave him to me as a leadership challenge because he was always in trouble in Okinawa. He became my best guy. All of my men, G Money, Gary Gordable, uh, Bo Ison, um, McCoy, they, um, uh, they were all just absolutely magnificent. Um, um, I took Dan with me because you don't want to overpenetrate the target area. There's dogs and people watching everywhere. Yeah, I mean, these, these are villages in which the same people, the same family know every freaking uh, grain of sand and every uh, palm tree and every blade of grass. That's their home for thousands of years to be very careful. I had rehearsed all week. First making my charges. Remember, these are explosives. Don't do it wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you're not going to remember here. much after, trust me. And so I practiced laying on my back and putting them in my pack and how under the cover of darkness to be able to deploy them and then uh, set them up on my spans and then put leads in and then um, uh, your blasting caps and then leads and then set it up for wire. I did this all week and then I did it for real. I climbed this freaking bridge underneath it and a man and a dog walked over, didn't even notice camied up. That's why you see all those pictures of me in cami paint because we were always doing repetitious stuff and clandestine stuff. Um, good old fashioned green side and, and tan side um, recon and sniper work. So I've got about 100 pounds of explosives. I've got my weapon, no helmet, cami up, got a tan do-rag on or, or some kind of veil to cover my movement. And uh, I'm using my legs like a guard, like jiu-jitsu, around a span as I take off my pack and put it up on the bridge. And I have bungees for my weapon so it's tight and not moving around. And I have to get these things out and, and put them on um, the other spans and the trusses. So I hold on with my chin on the I-beam and my legs as I am taking out my charges. This takes me three hours as I am climbing, 
holding on with my chin and legs, taping on charges with, you can't use any light. Mm -mm. You're compromised. All so right? you have like your night vision goggles Yes, but it's too close to, um, oh. to focus. And no, you just have to feel it. So I, I did special tape tags that I could feel and rehearse which order I would take them out. And of course I had the best night vision, uh, natural vision I could, but still I had rehearsed how to take the charges out and when to take them out and how to plug them in. Sometimes then taking my pack, putting it back on on one shoulder and then swinging across, catching with my legs and then holding on my chin, sliding the, the, the arm through the other uh, side of the pack, climbing through. I'd forgotten, I, man, I'd done so many heavy ops. I forgot all the stuff I've done. Again, maybe also because the frontal lobe is not aligned. I'm just living it, man, right? I, I didn't, uh, this was not for a fucking book deal. <laughs> you know, it ain't no fucking book deal. Well, you got to uh, focus on exactly what you're doing. Totally immersed, things. immersed. So um, after I set that fucking bridge up, which I completely forgot about, and then when the dawn came up, and then to blow the bridge and to um, and to and there was some enemy contact somewhere else, and I mean it was continuous combat, but I'd forgotten I'd even done that. And if I fell, oh, I didn't tell you, I'm, there's a river underneath me. If I fell, I was done because also there's. I'd be compromised first, but there's also so much silty mud. If I got stuck, I might just drown. There was no room for error. And this captain or major, he said, Sergeant Reyes, I'm like, Rudy, my name's Rudy. Rudy, God, we were just in awe watching you like, like Spider-Man, like a hero underneath there. We couldn't believe it. And then I remembered on my headset when the Lance Corporals go is that fucking Sergeant Reyes on the comms he's a he's like fucking Spider-Man damn that's good shit and you hear all the young Lance Corporals because they're all running the vehicles and they're all shit hot tow missile guys and infantry guys and just hearing their pride I'd forgotten even that because I was so here I remember them saying Spider-Man so um that that warmed my heart. Oh yeah, especially after where you were at that time. Yes, at, at, yeah. I was now again at ground zero. I I mean I was at rock bottom, which is fine because it's nothing but up from there. Which I want to ask you about. It's a kind of a tough segue, but if you could talk a little bit about, and I know we're we've got twenty minutes. Okay, so I got I got a couple questions. Um, one of them is. If you could talk about your lowest low yeah. and talk about how you came out of that. Mm. Well, I've had quite a few good ones. <laughs> I've had a couple of great lows. And why you they're... Human, right? Yeah, well, and, and what's so great about lows, I think Khalil Gibran said this, and I'll paraphrase paraphrase best I can to such, such a poet. I highly recommend all of you check out Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and he does the illustrations in there. Uh, magnificent human being, the prophet. Um, he mentioned something that without the daggers and swords of pain and hurt, regret, misery, without the, the daggers and swords carving out your heart and your stomach 
Without that, you have no space to hold the waters of love. I never thought of that. <laughs> so... It gave me so much poten more potential. Now is why I think I'm doing so well in comparison because damn straight I did go through it. I went through it. Um, I lost, I mean, there's so much loss. I lost First Sergeant Smith and, and he was killed on the invasion and back of his head was blown out. And this guy was the uber fucking warrior of recon, the indestructible warrior of recon. We lost him. Oh, by the way, you know what, man? Imagine that all my brothers are killed um, and wounded neither of them you know I never was at a funeral I never went to a funeral because I was still fighting I never could see my friends my brothers con convalesce like Eddie Wright when he went through so many surgeries because we were still fighting um, so Eric, you never got to actually just like, sit and mourn no. or nothing no, no. until you got home but then you started oh uh, yeah so I did so I never have <laughs> I never have and, and in a sense so I there's a, there's a, um, my favorite combat movie, my favorite war movie is Heat, Michael Mann's Heat. And it seems like it's a crime drama. It's the best crime drama, modern crime drama ever done. But uh, the reason why is because it's very militaristic about obsession of the operation. The, both the men, um, the, the policeman, the detective, uh, Vincent Hanna, Pacino, and then um, Neil McCauley, the takedown artist, score, and bank heist artist, Neil McCauley, were absolutely immersed with obsession for what they did. And Vincent Hanna plays, is a little backstory you'll hear that he was a platoon commander in Vietnam. He still carries a 45. He carries a 45, not a Glock or a SIG. Because, you know, that's what officers carried in Vietnam. He's got a nice little compact with uh, pearl handles. And he wastes no time with um, chatter or small talk, only orders, and uh, doesn't even waste his time with, with simple niceties or uh, politeness because he's still a military man. It is orders and we execute. Uh, he gets in an argument with his wife because he's out late chasing all the bad guys. When he finally comes back and all the buddies are gone, and it's just his wife waiting for him. And I can relate with this. And the, the actress that plays his wife looks a lot like my ex-wife, Cherie. And um, she said, this, he, he, she said, the world must have crashed. And he goes, yeah. And then she says, you want to talk about it? And he said, we don't do that, baby. And I said, and he says, honey, Told you when you got on this train, you're going to have to share me with all the pimps, um, murderers, rapists, bad people in the world. You knew what you were getting into, baby. And she says, this is not sharing. This is not sharing. And he says um, something like, um, what am I supposed to do, tell you about the, the, mother, the, the scene I came on with a woman put a baby in the microwave because he wouldn't stop crying and, and and the dad's OD'd and rotting and cold in the other room and and it's somehow sharing this like a cathartically I can dispel all this heinous shit no he goes I hold on to it I keep it here I, I like my angst I keep my angst because it keeps me sharp uh, ready to go 
of drop of a hat. And I can relate to that. And I understand it. I've only just begun untangling that part. And there's a certain part of why I haven't gone to the graves of my peoples because I need them still. I need them right here. And I still, and I need some of that hurt and anger and rage also uh, to fuel me to take Force Blue over the line. We can, I cannot forget my men. I cannot forget all the men that we're going to lose in the future and their families and the women that serve. I cannot forget them. It gives me that bit of, it gives me that plenty of angst, a whole reservoir of fuel to continue uh, pressing the envelope and honing the spear and with a complete disregard to my safety uh, or my sanity uh, to stab into that dark night and stab into uh, the apathy, the suffering, and uh, the evil of the world. I have to. And that's, that's how I am. Um, there will be a time when I can put my sword down and, and pick up the plow. I know, that's part of it. As, as two men would say, it's going to be part of the story. That's, it's written already. But right now I need my angst. Um, and though, that's, that's a low part and a high part because that angst gives me such strength. Um, I do have a hard time sleeping, always do. Um, I, uh, I started becoming violent too. Um, because of it, I, I got heavy into drugs and alcohol, heavy. And I, I was the opposite my whole life. I eschewed it completely. Uh, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted nothing to do with any of the gangbang cultures and any of the excuse cultures. But now I see, you know what? Every All you veterans, brothers and sisters out there, and there's a lot of them now studying, struggling with opioids and, of course, alcohol, number one, which is a very dangerous drug, alcohol. Um, all of you brothers and sisters out there struggling with depression and drugs and uh, alcohol and violence and or depression and are struggling to have work, can't get through the simple processes that a lot of people take for granted, understand that you're completely normal and you rate to be going through this. And the only way really to heal is to go through it. But now let us be much more intelligent and much more open-hearted, all of us that have gone through it and are on the other side, to help all the rest. Uh, I have messages every day, you all, every day, brothers and sisters, uh, close to suicide, suicidal suicidal every day and I'm compelled to help them so maybe that's why you know that's why it's hard for anybody to be in a relationship with me especially now because I'm up emailing and texting strangers every day every night and we'll go there I'll go see them and thanks to people like Recon Sniper Foundation we're able to help people we're able to get them into mental health work into job placement um help families of the deceased and the bereft. I am speaking at a Gold Star Mothers uh, organization later later in the, in the spring. Uh, I'm compelled to do this. I'm compelled to help ease the suffering and, and show some light to these people. I realize now, looking back, I had so much more t- skills and training by the best men in the world to equip me to get through it. And I still almost killed myself. I was suicidal too. When I lost my son, uh, my son was taken from me and my military service was used against me. Um, my mental health was used against me. I'd come out of the uh, Veterans Village of San Diego and I had to go to court. I've never been to court in my life. I've never been arrested in my life. 
And the bailiffs, they have extra bailiffs there because they're afraid of me freaking killing somebody. Already the whole courtroom's against me. I had to go through very embarrassing anger management courses and fly back in to see the judge over and over. I look back now, though, at that as my lowest point, and I was, I was doing so many hard drugs. I don't even remember how maybe I was awake for a week, and I had my pistol uh, there, and I was fucking finished. So I put it in my mouth. I was fucking done. I was over. I was finished with this. I, I was heartbroken at a level of heartbreak that's hard to um, to to speak on a level of heartbreak as my son. He's so beautiful and he's and he was my best little friend and I see now that he was a chance for me to be a child. He was really me. And so I was seeing little Rudy being thrown away all over again and I was seeing a dad that could not be there. A dad a dad I was seeing a, I was seeing my my biological father, Gustavo de la Yata, not doing enough, not doing a goddamn thing. And I was giving everything I had, but I still couldn't get through that cloud and I was, I was finished. And I'll tell you what, strangely, what happened right there. Um, I guess people would call it God. They call it something. I don't know. I don't care what they call it. Actually, I don't think people even know what to call it. And they shouldn't call it too much because it only separates ourselves. But this voice, and it wasn't in English. It was no voice, but it was a voice. It just said, no, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay, Rudy. And, um, and get to work. Let's start prepping for that patrol. Since then, um, since then, my life's changed. Gave me enough s s wind underneath my wings to uh, get a job with Rick Elder or work, and and not fuck it up completely by by losing my mind. And because I'm such a sweet person, when people are mean to me, I don't know how to handle it. So now I just fucking destroy them, I fight them, and kill them. Um, and because I did not have any skills there. And in recon, you don't have to do that because everybody knows who's who. Everybody knows who's who in the zoo. Nobody, nobody fucks with nobody. They all love each other. And if it does go down, there's so much love anyway. It's just brothers fighting. And we go right back together and, uh, and fight the enemy um, as brothers again. I had no personal skills to deal with regular life. Um, and... Uh, and Rick Elder took a chance on me and beyond. And then I met Bert Soren at Smoke Check and Ronnie Holmes. And, uh, and then we started training hard again. I started getting my freaking life back. And then the idea with Force Blue with Jim Ritteroff. Jim Ritteroff also. And there were still peaks and valleys. I still fell down a few times. I'd be on the streets of New York. Not even remember how I got there. I don't even remember the plane ride there. And that's when Jim found me, Jim Ritteroff. And he started... Uh, he was doing a mother, or uh, he was doing a, a dive trip with his daughter, and he asked his daughter, "Hey, because he just graduated from, um, she just graduated from high school, going to college, can I bring Rudy? You know?" And she was like, "Oh God!" She ended up having the time of her life. We had the raddest time. The boyfriend that she liked there was more interested in hanging out with me than her. It was rad, and that is the beginning of Force Blue, and why I saw those beautiful God's creatures under the water, and I saw each and one of those, each one of those little animals, the cowfish, and and the. Um, the moray eels and the sharks and, and the clownfish and, and the little uh, mantis shrimps and, um, 
And I saw each and every one of those little individuals as people, as beings, as beings. And I saw them like myself, beings. And they're all working together. And do they got to freaking hunt and kill to eat? Yes, they do, like we all do. Um, but they're working together. And when Jim said that this is all going away, uh, that, that the cruise liners are coming in and they're destroying all this reef to put in um, marketplaces for their people and and that we're having issues with climate change. Immediately I was hit, just like I was hit when I saw the documentary with those children. I said, I must do something about it. And that is how Force Blue started. And the healing I've seen with my men, who are the greatest warriors in the world, it's nothing short of miracles happening. There's miracles happening down in the Keys right now with Force Blue. There's really miracles happening. Um, Oh, my God. You're giving people... A purpose again. You're showing yes. them passion and how how to continue to save the world. Yes, just, in a different just like we did before. Mm-hmm. Um, and geopolitics aside, and and economics aside, that's what we did all this hard service for us because we believed in yeah. something, and then we get jaded through it because it's suffering and warfare. And then some of our people, like myself too, when your whole identity is your craft. You're never going to ever do enough. You can get three gold medals and it's not enough. It's never enough. So one day when your body's old or your mind is hurt and you're no longer hitting on those cylinders, what a vacuum of self-worth and self-respect is an emptiness. And, um, and that kills us. We, isolation kills us. And that's what we do when we're empty. We hide away. That's what I did. I've seen the light, um, the luminous light bulb come back on in all my men. And we love working together. We're from all generations and all forces. Um, I mean, we've got them all down there. John Slayer and Clark from the Brit Royal Marine Commando and, and Clark's SPS guy, legend operator, humble as hell. We've got SF uh, Ranger Tab Cat. That's uh, Tom. He's he was like he's like the cranky John Goodman, but he's so sharp. He's like John Goodman, but now his life now he's happy all the time. Um, we're touching all kinds of lives. Will Hinkson, Roger Sparks. We got so many great people. Um, Andy, um, Dan. How can people get involved? How can sure. they donate? Wonderful. Uh, please get on the website forcebluteam.org. We're a fully vetted, um, absolutely steeped in virtue nonprofit and uh and just get on the site donate um buy some swag from us t-shirts things like that uh or donate and you get swag from us uh find out ways to support us uh if you hear of our next fundraiser um start being more mindful also about ocean conservation your plastic your trash um give more uh take less Give more, take less. Get on forceblueteam.org and you'll find out how to do it. Our, our, our Instagram is amazing. My stuff is very easy to find, rudyreyes.com. And my Instagram is realrudyreyes. Facebook, Rudy Reyes. You'll see all the gorgeous work that we're doing as a collective. I just got back. I'll wrap up with this. I just did an outreach with veterans in an in a old folks home. Some of them from World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Um, all the way up to Desert Storm. And they're kind of like we were. We were, we were like fire and forget weapons after the fucking rockets out and the objectives hit, enemies killed. Uh, what's left is a tube. 
And so these people were tubes. They, their families are not there. I went there and we talked about Force Blue and all the men and their wives are getting fired up and and then they're crying and I'm crying. And, we're, <laughs> and I mean, this is a message of Force Blue. It's a ripple effect that goes far beyond what you see us doing subsurface. It has to do with what you see um, and what you feel us doing around the world. Thank you. Thank you for being here, for doing this. And uh, and I'll link everything that he just talked about in his description on my website. So um, stay tuned because big things are obviously happening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rock and wow. Well.